I'll give you all a warm welcome to our service tonight. We'll begin by singing Psalm 23 in the Scottish Psalter and tune his amazing grace. We'll stand and sing the whole psalm. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me down to lie in pastures green. He leadeth me the quiet waters by. The whole psalm. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me that we can have our service tonight and we pray that as we meet you would bless us. We thank you Lord that you are able to bless us in different ways. Uh, you can do so by teaching us 
or you can do so as we've been thinking in the psalm by shepherding us and sometimes uh, the way you shepherd is by teaching us but other times we need to be rescued from spiritual dangers and problems and quite often it's in a service like this that you come and do that and we pray therefore that you would be uh, dealing with us in the way that you know best and the way that's good for us Lord we are conscious that we are never fully aware of how much we need your help sometimes Sadly, we actually forget completely that we need your help. And we can go for hours without asking for your involvement. And that is um, not wise because we know that the enemy of our souls, he's always active and waiting to find an appropriate moment when we will be susceptible uh, to his efforts to deflect us or disturb us or deceive us. And therefore, Lord, we confess our failure to ask for your help as often as we should. Sometimes we can become overconfident at our times we can become even worse and become self-confident and Lord therefore we pray that you would teach us that we need your involvement at all times and we thank you that you are willing and eager and you know how to help us and our troubles and your word contains many examples of that and we thank you Lord for these examples sometimes <coughs> examples are easier to understand uh, than the most um, straightforward statement because statements can always be enlarged and we thank you, Lord, for the, just the many examples of the way you help people and how they are recorded for us to expect something similar from you. And even though we live in a very different time period from the examples in your word, uh, we know that human nature doesn't change and neither does the spiritual experience of those who are trying to follow you through life as your disciples that whether we're living in what we imagine as the sophisticated 21st century or whether we go back as a word to your word to a more simple time the fact is as far as our spiritual life is concerned we're all in the same boat and we need your help 
So Lord, we ask for your help tonight, because every one of us needs it. And probably in numerous ways, whether we're young or whether we're old. And we thank you that the psalm we have just sung is not a psalm that can be defined by age, because it applies to all periods of life. And we can sing it at the beginning, and we can sing it in the middle, and we can sing it at the end of life. And uh, what's important is not so much that the Lord is the shepherd, but that the Lord is my shepherd. That's what's important for all of us, that we can say that, the personal pronoun, the Lord is my shepherd. So Lord, we pray that we would be thankful for the possibility of that relationship and also for the various features of that relationship as you show yourself to be the faithful shepherd as Jesus himself said you are the, the good shepherd that he's a good shepherd Lord we just pray that we would be conscious of that we ask you to be with us as we start another week this week is uh, unknown to us as far as its contents are concerned history of our own lives and the experience of others tells us that our week never turns out the way we thought it would. And sometimes there's big surprises, sometimes there's small adjustments. But it's good for us to be able to commit ourselves into your hands, knowing that that's a safe place for us to be consciously there. And as Jesus himself said, when we're in his hands or in your hands, that no one can pluck us out of them. So Lord, help us to look to you for each coming day, that you would make it a good day for us spiritually, and we would experience your mercy in all kinds of ways in this coming week. We pray for those in the congregation who are not well at this time, and we just ask, Lord, that you would remember them as they uh, go through whatever they're going through. We just ask you, Lord, that the treatment that some are getting would uh, be uh, helpful for them, uh, and also that those who've had operations, that they would uh, recover uh, well from them. We pray for those who perhaps are apprehensive about the future, that you would uh, come to them and help them as they face that circumstances. Lord, we pray that you would remember our country, and as this past week has shown us, we can't always anticipate what's going to happen at the high levels of our land, and therefore we just pray that you would um, remember our governments, guide them in all the decisions that they make, and remember all the various politicians who this coming week will be making numerous decisions and some of them inevitably affecting everyone else. And we just ask you, Lord, to guide them in all these decisions they have to make. We pray you bless your church in our country. We are, we are facing difficult times as 
your word is no longer regarded as of any value in our culture, and therefore we have to accept that's the case, although it's difficult for us to adjust to that being the world we're in. We somehow automatically assume that everyone in one way will want to live by your word, whereas the reality is that the vast majority have no interest in doing that, and therefore we have to get used to living in that kind of society, but then that was the society in which the New Testament appeared, and your people coped with it back then, and the same is true of today. The darker the background, the brighter uh, we can appear, and we just ask you, Lord, that that would be the case, that there would be something so dramatically different, but also attractive uh, about your church, so that these difficult days would be days in which the church would flourish, and there's no reason why that shouldn't happen. So we pray, Lord, it would happen, and even today, around our country, wherever the gospel's preached, uh, that you would bless it, and we even can work out ourselves that if one person was converted in every place where the gospel's preached, then that would add up to several thousand. And therefore, Lord, we ask that you would do that, and not do it just today, but every time the gospel's preached. So, Lord, do it for your own name's sake, we pray, and give your, get yourself great glory for doing that. It's never appropriate for us to get glory, but it's always appropriate for you to get it. And therefore, we pray that you would arrange for that, that you yourself would have the glory of salvation increased in our society. Lord, remember us then, be with the children in our service. We pray you'd bless them and help them to understand uh, what they need to understand and that you would help us as adults to understand what we need to understand as well. So Lord, bless us as we're here. Just remember us and keep us and pardon us for your own name's sake. Amen. We can sing... Psalm 1A from Sing Psalms, and the tune is Talus. Again, we'll stand to sing. Blessed is the one who turns away from where the wicked walk, who does not stand in sinners' paths, or sit with those who mock. We'll sing the whole psalm. Blessed is the one who turns away from where the wicked walk, who does not stand in sinners' paths or sit with those who mourn. Instead, he finds God's holy.
takes the precepts of the Lord, his study day and night. He prospers ever like a tree that's planted by a stream, and in due season yields its fruit, its leaves are always green. Not so the wicked, they are like the chaff that's blown away. They will not stand where judgment comes, from the Gospel of Luke and chapter 24, and we'll read from verse 13 to verse 33. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Do not our hearts burn within us, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together. And may God bless that reading. We can now sing from Psalm 107 in the Scottish Psalter. We'll sing verses 1 to 9. The tune is Loch Broom. Praise God, for he is good, for still his mercies lasting be. May God's redeemed say so, whom he from the enemy's hand did free. Verses 1 to 9. <clears throat> Praise God, for he is good, for still his mercies last in me. Wonder. 
turn back to the passage you read there, uh, Luke 24, verses 13 to 33. And I'd just like us to look at some of the details of this well-known walk, walk to Emmaus. Well, it goes without saying, doesn't it, that the, these two disciples were in a state of complete bewilderment. All their hopes had been um, dashed. Uh, what they had thought Jesus would accomplish, well, that had just disappeared completely, from their perspective anyway. And the future, whatever the future they had been thinking about, it would have to change. It would be radically different from what they had expected. And we can sympathize with them in that way, because sometimes for us, uh, life can be a bit like a roller coaster, seemingly going nowhere. But as with most roller coasters, most of the time, life is quite safe. It all depends who's actually in charge of it. And um, certainly these two individuals, as they made their way along the road, they thought life had become a disaster. And that, well, they were just sad. And they expected the rest of life to be totally sad. And even what should have been good news to them wasn't good news. I mean, they, they obviously know, as we can see from verse 22 and round about there, that the women have been to the tomb and found it empty. And there they saw uh, what the two of them described as a vision of angels. It wasn't a vision they saw, was it? I mean, they actually saw real angels who spoke to them. So even the way they phrase it tells us something about their, their outlook that um, it almost kind of gives a hint that they thought that the, perhaps the women were a bit hysterical and that their claims to have seen this encounter uh, with angels it wasn't really happening in the real world, as it were. And they even confirm it by pointing out in verse 24 that some of them had gone to the tomb. So they know Peter and John have been there. 
But their, their visit to the tomb has just confirmed. He's not there. Where is he? Well, they don't seem to have any answers for that one. But we're not too surprised that they don't have an answer because life has been totally confusing and they cannot be encouraged. Or can they? I'd just like us to think of a few things from the, uh, the passage. Talking. That's a good thing to do, isn't it? And the two of them are talking to one another. There's also this tra- traveler who just appears. And then there's the topic of their conversation. What have they been speaking about? And then there's what we could call the teaching that Jesus gives to them, although they don't know it's Jesus. And then there's the table. And then there's the transformation. So just a little about each of these points. Those who are talking, who are they? Well, we know who one of them is, Clophus or Cleopas. I mean, I think it's common sense to say that it's probably himself and his wife that are walking along the road. It is possible, of course, that they're two brothers, Clophus and an unnamed brother, and that the only reason why Clophus is mentioned, Cleophas, is because he became well-known in the church. But it just looks as if there's a couple heading home to, to Emmaus. There's one thing interesting about them, at least I think it's interesting, and that is because most of Jesus' disciples came from Galilee. But here's a couple who come from Judea because they stay in Emmaus. And Emmaus is only seven miles from Jerusalem. So they are a reminder to us that um, not all Jesus' followers uh, were um, from his part of the country. Most of the apostles were from that part of the world, but um, here's a couple who are from Judea. Because they lived in Emmaus, they were able to travel back and forth to Jerusalem. They didn't have to stay in the city every night as the other disciples had to do. But what's interesting about it is they knew where all the disciples were. And they're well enough informed, as I mentioned already, to uh, relate some of the events that already happened this day. So sometimes we have to be careful when we describe what the effects of the arrest of Jesus was on the disciples. I mean, sometimes, I've probably done it myself, sometimes we can describe their flight 
as if it was a flight of total chaos. But it's evidently the case that although there's only about three days since Jesus was crucified, during that three days these disciples were together. And these um, couple, when they later changed their mind and went back to the city, they knew where to go to. And they knew that who would be there when they went there. So I don't think we're to give the impression that uh, the disciples had descended into a state of where that they all separated and no one knew where the other one was. I mean, the, the commands that the angel gave to the woman and the command that Jesus later gave to the woman indicate that both the angel and Jesus realized that the woman knew where the disciples were. Because otherwise, how could they have gone and told them? So, these ones are talking, and although their hopes have been dashed, they can't help but talk about Jesus. And it's probably the case, although it's just a guess, it's probably the case that everything they said about him on this seven-mile walk was wrong. Well, it must have been, because they thought he was dead. And they thought that they probably wouldn't see him again. And that everything that he had indicated about a kingdom he was going to set up, that that had been just prevented and wasn't going to happen. And therefore, they would be going over and over and over these things and everything that they thought about him would have been wrong. And that's sad, isn't it? But it's also encouraging. I mean, I don't know about you, but I can look back to saying things about Jesus that were totally wrong. And I'd be very surprised if all of us don't fall into that category. And didn't mean the Savior had no interest. We don't have to be perfect in order for Jesus to come and speak to us. We don't have to be half perfect for Jesus to come and speak to us. We don't even have to be 1% correct for Jesus to have to come to speak to us. We can just be all over the place and unable to give a coherent account, an accurate account of how we see things. And it could be that that's the actual time we expect him to come and speak to us. So the fact that this couple were totally wrong in their outlook 
They had misunderstood everything. They didn't believe he was alive. None of that disqualified them from getting a visit from Jesus. And to me, that just shows his kindness. He doesn't hold our silly notions against us. So they're talking away. And they're so engrossed in their conversation that they don't notice a stranger uh, appearing. I mean, I assume that Luke got this story from them. And the details that they mention there, that they were the informers. But it looks from their knowledge of what took place that they don't know how Jesus appeared there. They don't know if he came along walking behind them. We're not told that. We're not told whether he just joined them from a side road. They didn't recognize, they didn't uh, sense him coming. And that's good too, isn't it? Because if he only comes when we sense him coming, then how often is he going to come? There's lots of times when we have perhaps imagined he would come. And as far as our sense of comfort is concerned, uh, we didn't discern him. Go to the Lord's table. Surely he'll be here. And somebody else sitting beside us will turn and say to us, Oh, that was wonderful. And we're sitting there saying, Well, no doubt it was, but didn't notice anything. But often he just comes. And we don't expect it. Which in a strange way should tell us that we should expect him. <laughs> he just appears. He knows how to come silently. He doesn't have to make a big sound as he draws near to our hearts. Just comes. And when he comes on this occasion, since he's in charge of what's happening, he stops them from recognizing him. That's interesting, isn't it? That Jesus, who's later on going to tell the disciples, all power is given to him in heaven and on earth. He stops them recognizing him. Why do you do that? Well, it's only a guess, but I think it's a fairly obvious answer for it. They have to learn to live by God's word. And even 
meeting the risen Savior on this walk is not as important as understanding God's Word. Imagine if they had gone back to Jerusalem at the end of the walk and the disciples had said to him, well, what did he say to you? And they had said, well, he said nothing. He was just there. What comfort would they have passed on to their disciples? They could have lots of good ideas about Jesus if he had said nothing. Yes, he's alive. But would they have understood the right things about him? So I suspect that's why he hid himself from them. So they would understand who he was from his own word. And that's just what happened, wasn't it? Now he does seem to have looked different on this occasion. Mark tells us that when he appeared to them, he appeared in another form. And we may want to ask, what was the other form? Well, the only answer to that one I have is I haven't a clue. Neither has anybody else. And there's no point us trying to work out what it is. Because even if we happen to land on the right answer, it's still only a guess as far as we're concerned, because we're not told what it was. And if we're not told what it was, we're not meant to try and work out what it was. All we're told is that he prevented them from recognizing him. And they didn't even recognize his voice, which is quite interesting because Mary Magdalene when she met Jesus initially she didn't recognize him she thought he was the gardener but when she said to her when he said to her in whatever way he normally said it Mary she recognized his voice and she just said, Rabboni, my dear master. But these two, they weren't even allowed that. So it's not just his um, presence that they're prevented from recognizing, but even his voice. Now the, the approach that the stranger has, this traveller has, is a very interesting one. And I think it's a, a method that is a very suitable one for us to adopt. And that is, by beginning a conversation, 
by asking short questions. He just says them there, doesn't he? Um, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And that particular question, well, they're astonished at it. I mean, their answer, Clophus says, are you the only one in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened? I mean, that kind of gives the impression that as these two individuals were walking along the road and, and, and walking around the city, and as they heard people speaking, all of them were speaking about what happened. They, they just couldn't escape from this. Everybody is speaking about what's happened in the last two or three days. We know that after, Luke tells us that after Jesus was crucified, everybody went home beating their breasts. They were distressed. And since that sad event had happened, people hadn't been speaking about anything else. Even the ones who opposed Jesus were preoccupied with speaking about him like sending guards to the tomb and so on. So they're astonished. They think they've actually met somebody who is unique in the sense that he doesn't know anything that's happened in Jerusalem. When, of course, he's the one that actually knows best what's happened there. But it is an interesting way to do things, isn't it? But before we speak to someone, we ask relevant questions. Because sometimes we can just jump in with two feet and make a mess of the whole situation. So the Savior here, as he deals with these very despondent people, he just gets them to talk. And he does it by these simple questions. And that leads us to think about the topic that they had been speaking about. And the, they'd say, both of them reply, as we can see in verse 19. And they said, that, well, we thought that Jesus uh, was a prophet. Mighty in deed and word. Of course, and that order is quite an interesting one, because that's the order that Luke stresses. Jesus, all that Jesus began to do and teach. And here's these, this couple, and they are saying that he's mighty in deed and word. And he did nothing in secret. Did it before God and all the people. This... Jesus, whom they only thought was a mighty prophet, was transparent in everything that he did and hid nothing. But sadly, his death, his arrest and his death, as we can see from verses 20 and 21, that they had, well, flattened them completely. 
we thought, we hoped he was the one to redeem Israel, but no, he's not. And of course, we're meant to think not just about them when they're saying this, but we're meant to think of the one they're saying it to. I mean, he has redeemed Israel, hasn't he? His resurrection is the proof that he's done it. And here they are, and they're speaking to the risen Redeemer and saying to him, we thought that this man would do it, but he hasn't done it. And still Jesus persists with their con- listening to their conversation. And, and they in, they in their despondency have actually said the exact opposite of the truth. And he listens. And that's very important. As we look at these two men, or two people, whatever they were, how do we explain them? Well, I'll tell you how we shouldn't explain them. We shouldn't start discussing whether or not they were converted. I mean, they are converted. Jesus regards them as very important. I mean, this couple are either the third or the fourth ones he's met on this resurrection day. He met Mary Magdalene. And then he met the women who were on the way to tell the disciples. And then the next meeting is either with them or with Peter. So they're pretty high on the Savior's list, aren't they? The Savior cares for them. We could almost say Jesus cares for the ones who are disappointed with him. Jesus cares for the ones who are disappointed with him. He's still got a shepherd's heart, hasn't he? Who do shepherds look for? As far as his parables are concerned, he looks for wandering sheep. He's a great physician. Who do great physicians deal with? Not with the healthy, but with the sick. And here's these two individuals. They're sheep who are wandering. Spiritually, they've got nowhere to go. Health-wise, they're... Spiritual temperature is zero. 
even though their hearts are burning within them because they don't understand. But Jesus, you know, he can't let them go. There he is on the day of his triumph. He's drawn towards those who don't believe he has triumphed. And he takes time to teach them. And as we look at his teaching there in verse, 30, verse 25 and 27, well, he... How would you react if you met somebody down in High Street and they asked you a couple of questions and you gave your best answer and then that person said to you, oh fool. But that's what happened to them. But he, he diagnosed their problem and told them what it was about their mind and their heart. And it's interesting what he says, isn't it? Well, everything Jesus says is interesting. But he doesn't say to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that I have spoken to you. I mean, he knew that they had heard him say things to them. But that's not what he says to them that you are slow of heart to believe all that I have said to you, although he spoke the words of eternal life. Their problem, of course, isn't it? They hadn't believed all that the prophets had spoken. They hadn't believed Psalm 23. They hadn't believed Isaiah 53. They would have known these passages. They hadn't focused on the Bible. Their heart had been slow to use the information. They hadn't believed it. Here are believers who haven't believed it. The word of God was in their minds. And they hadn't believed it. It was even in their heart, and they hadn't believed it. And how often that is the case with ourselves. We can quote Bible verses, but if somebody says to us, do you believe it? What would we say to that? And of course, this response by the Savior, well, he's not giving them a row. He's actually leading them in a path of restoration. He's come to sort out their dilemma. And we see something of the intensity of the Savior's heart in their little word in verse 25. Oh. Quite often, the most important a word in a sentence might be the shortest. And the little word, oh, well, that always gives great insight into the speaker. 
if he had just said, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. That would have been true, but it wouldn't have been so personal. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. They hadn't used their scriptures. If they had used them, this day would have been very different. They would have been saying to each other as they walked along the road, well, this is the third day. This is the day he's going to rise from the dead. This is the day when everything is going to be sorted out and all our hopes are going to be expanded. We heard what he said before he died, but now having died and having risen, he's going to tell us wonderful things. That's how they would have reacted if they had believed what the Bible said. Don't know about you, but it's easy to believe the Bible is true. But is it easy to believe the Bible is true for me? It's easy to give advice to somebody else about the Bible's promises. But what are these promises saying to us at that moment? So anyway, Jesus, he responds to them there in verse 26. I suppose it is an interesting question to ask. Can you describe the Bible in one sentence? You describe the message of the Bible in one sentence. And I suppose someone might say, well, yes, John 3 and 16. That's a verse that describes the message of the Bible in one sentence. But I would say also, so does verse 26 of Luke 24. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Because that's what Jesus seems to indicate the Bible's all about. And of course, Peter himself says that, doesn't he? And he's writing one of his letters when he says that the prophets, as they looked ahead to what was coming, they predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And is that not what the Bible's all about? And I think if we use it for other purposes, we actually can defeat the purpose. The Bible's got lots of history, 100% accurate, but it's not a history book. It says a great deal about things that interest science, but it's not a book about science. It's a book about the sufferings of Christ and the glories that will follow. And he himself says that. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, and all these words are important, all the prophets, he interpreted to them 
in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He's the subject of the scriptures. Remember, one man said in a sermon once that he, he decided to read nothing but the book of Ephesians for a period of several months. And he did that. And he said, after he'd done it for a few weeks, Jesus Christ just walked out of his pages. It all depends what we're looking for. But Jesus says here to these two, doesn't he? You'll find me in the scriptures. If you look at his statement there, he seems to say two things about the Old Testament. One is, it's all about him. And the other one is, it needs to be interpreted. We can imagine him speaking about the sacrifices, since that's what Christ should suffer these things. So he'll speak about the sacrifices. And he could just say, take the burnt offering and say to them, that's my dedication. Or he could take the peace offering and say, well, that's what happens to you because I suffered. Or he could take the sin offering. That's what I became, he could say. Or the Passover lamb. It pictures me, says Jesus. Providing protection from the angel of death. Or he could take the morning and evening sacrifice and just say, well, that tells you that you need me every day. You need my sacrifice all the time. Interpretation is not... You don't need the brain of Einstein to understand. Just need heavenly insight. Same with his glory. His glory is not written in 20th century language. Or 21st century, sorry. I mean, his glorious kingdom is described using pictures drawn from ancient empires and expanded religious buildings like huge temples. But it's all there. It's all about him. And the strange thing is, he's still the only one who interprets them. Because he's a prophet. There's only one person who's prophet, priest, and king. 
And it's still him who speaks about himself. And it's good for us that that's the case. And he teaches all his people. So he's an incredible teacher. He just makes the Bible live. It just becomes a lie. And these two, their hearts are starting to burn. Not at what they were saying, but at what he was saying. And they get to the house. And Jesus, he tests people all the time. We know that, don't we? He's going to test us tonight. And he'll test us tomorrow. Just does it all the time. Just does it in simple ways. And he he gave the impression to these two that as they neared the house, he just kept on walking. And they could have said, oh, that's what he wants to do. We'll just let him do it. And if they had done that, what would the rest of the day have been like for them? tested them and despite the fact that they were so out of sync they passed the test and they urged him strongly in verse 29 stay with us hospitality of course was a necessary thing in the ancient world but whether that was the motive that moved them on this occasion I suspect there was more to it they probably sensed wouldn't they that the explanation that he had given them there was much more to say and they just said come in And we're not told all they did when they went there, but they sat down for their meal. And rather surprisingly and strangely, but Jesus does do things like this. We might say the guest became the owner. The house became his. He was in charge of what took place at the meal. There's no hint that they asked him to break the bread. He just did it. He wanted to reveal himself to them. And in what way did he want them to see him? Did he just want them to see that he's a risen man? Or did he want them to see that he's a risen, crucified man? And there is a difference. 
It's good to know that Jesus has power over death. But it's also good to know that the one who has got power over death has paid the penalty for sin. And as we look at his hands, holes in them, and I suspect that's how they recognized him, I mean, how many people would you meet walking around with holes in their hands? And there he is, sitting at their table. And before they get a chance to ask him anything, he disappears. Why did he disappear? Because they had seen who he is. What else did they need to see? They had discovered he's alive and that he bears the marks of the cross. I suppose we, we want to ask what's this ability he now has to just disappear like this? And of course the reality is that the risen Savior, he just doesn't appear or disappear rapidly on the earth. But in a few weeks' time, he's going to disappear rapidly from the earth. So he has new abilities. Great were his abilities before the cross. But the ones after the cross, well, they're beyond our understanding. So that leads us finally to the transformation. Just a couple of things about this. You know, it's impossible not to have changed hearts after spending time with Jesus leading us through the Bible. I'll say it again. It's impossible not to have changed hearts after spending time with Jesus leading us through the Bible. It's his word. He honors it. The Holy Spirit uses God's word to stimulate and to bless contact with the risen Lord. The Bible's a living book. It's his word. Alive today as it's ever been. And in it he speaks. Speaks as powerfully as he ever did in Galilee. Brarly love, of course, made them think of others who had been in the same boat as them the other despondent believers in Jerusalem. We have to go back and tell them. You know, the, there's lots of things we can do in Brarley Love. But the easiest and the most straightforward one to do is to tell other Christians what Jesus means to us.
That's what they did. And they were quite prepared to walk seven miles to see it. And I suspect if we're not prepared to walk somewhere to see it, have we actually heard it? Because Jesus uses his people as channels, channels of grace. This couple, they thought they were going home this day. Jesus had different plans for them. He wanted them to go to Jerusalem and be a source of comfort to the despondent disciples. And as they had said, it's too late. What would he have said to them? The blessing that came to Emmaus was not to stay in Emmaus. Jesus gives us no blessings to stop at ourselves. We're to be channels, not blockers. Pass it on. Share it. What Jesus means to us. Tell others. That's what he wants from us. So may God bless these thoughts. Lord, we give thanks for the way you dealt so kindly and so tenderly with these wandering sheep. We thank you that your cure for their problem made them eager to share your name. Lord, we pray you would give us real, living, vibrant encounters with you in your word that would change our outlook, even our plans for the day. Lord, help us. We ask for your own name's sake. Amen. We'll sing Psalm 133 from the Sing Psalms. Tune is Eastgate, Eastgate, and we'll sing the whole psalm. How excellent a thing it is, how pleasant and how good, when brothers dwell in unity and live as brothers should. The whole psalm. How excellent a thing it is, how pleasant, how good, when brothers dwell in unity and live as brothers should, and live as brothers should, for it is like the
May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.